Do you like surprises? Well, I, I want to say uh, before I begin that uh, my preaching today was not a surprise. We had planned that I would be preaching often uh, after all of the cr Christmas stuff that goes on here. The normal preachers want to take a break, and so they invite me, the abnormal preacher, uh, to, uh, to fill in. I'm Randy Peterson. Uh, welcome. Uh, to uh, people from Mount Laurel, where I normally worship. Uh, I know we're com combining uh, congregations today, so uh, welcome to you. And uh, uh, I know there may be visitors today. Uh, sometimes the Christmas season, there are people traveling and visiting uh, loved ones. And so if you are visiting with us today, welcome. And, and I just hope you have a really great time here, um, worshiping God, doing something really important for your soul and uh, sharing uh, the delight of God with others. Already we've had some fabulous music that uh, uh, has, uh, uh, has, has warmed my soul and uh, prepared me well for what I have to share with you today. Um, do you like surprises is the question and I imagine that your answer, what, what I got from you was kind of a, huh, well, nah, maybe, yeah. depends. Depends on whether it's a good surprise or a bad surprise. You're expecting something. Is what happens better than what you expect, or is it something that interrupts what you expected and makes life more difficult for you? Um, I've been thinking about surprises of, of both kinds. I was in Colorado this week visiting my brother and father, and for a very simple Christmas, we had a plan of, of you know, picking up my father at the retirement home where he lives and taking him to the, where my brother lives, 10 minutes away, except uh, we had some car difficulties. Uh, and so we had a flurry of calling tow trucks and getting a rental car and trying to make everything all right. It was uh, an interruption in our normal plan, and it turned out okay, but uh, it was not pleasant uh, to go through all of this. On the other hand, I thought of uh, a year ago, my sister called me and said, would you like to go and see a play? Uh, they're doing uh, a Christmas carol at the Lantern Theater. Would you like to see a Christmas carol? Well, I've seen a Christmas carol about 143 times in my life. <laughs> I know how it goes. You know, he has the dream, you know, and the three, the three ghosts, and, and then he changes, and it's, you know, it's nice. It's a nice story. I like the story of A Christmas Carol. It's really nice, and I've seen some good productions of it over the years, but I've seen it 143 times. Um, my sister said, yeah, but um, this, is, this is new. This is, this is special. Uh, the actor Tony Lawton is doing it as a one-man show. Now, I know Tony, uh, and, and I've seen his work a lot, and he's a very good actor in, in the Philly area, uh, one of the best. And um, I also know he's a Christian, and so he brings that, that soul-level interaction with the material. And uh, my sister also told me that her husband, my brother-in-law, who is also involved in theater in Philadelphia, had helped to work on this production, and, uh, and that's why we were getting getting free tickets, and so <laughs> you should have led with that, the free tickets, yeah. Uh, so let's go and see this, this play. So I go expecting a good thing, expecting a good play, good quality, I know the people involved, it's a good story, 
a nice Christmas thing to do. It, it blew my socks off. And I wasn't even wearing socks. I, it, was, it was wonderful. It was so deep and personal. And this, this actor um, brought, brought such depth to the, to the experience of Scrooge there. He wasn't just some miser that I, I could make fun of. He was, he was somebody with, uh, who, who had trouble finding his soul, who, who had, had steeled it against life, and who, who had to go through this experience of dreams and remembering his past and envisioning his future in order to understand who he really was. And this actor, at various points, stopped the story. Now, he was telling the Charles Dickens story, but, but he stopped it every so often and, and talked right to us and said, what, what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your soul? To, can you understand what it's like? How do you take that story and apply it to today? He was bringing that great traditional story into our lives and moving us in that process. It was an outstanding piece of work. They're actually doing it again this year, and if you don't feel like watching the Eagles game today, they have the final performance of A Christmas Carol in Philly uh, at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, so, um, but uh, this interrupted my expectations of what, a, what Christmas Carol was about. The play that I expected to see was exceeded. It was so much better. That's what I see in the stories that we're talking about today. This sense of expecting something good and the surprise comes, the interruption comes in saying, yes, you know that, you expect that, and you're kind of yawning about it already now, but this is what's going to happen. This is the delight that is in store for you. It is so much bigger than what you expect. That's where we're going with this story. Now, all month we've been in this series called Life Interrupted. And we've been looking at the Christmas story as a series of interruptions. Mary, peasant girl in Nazareth, she thinks she knows how her life is going to go. Surprise, an angel shows up, says, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. That will change everything. Her life is interrupted. It is never the same after that. Joseph thinks he's marrying a nice peasant girl from Nazareth. She's pregnant. He thinks he's going to just, I'm, I'll divorce her. I'll, I'll break the engagement. I'll go on my life and, and forget this ever happened. But then he has a dream. And his life is interrupted as well. He becomes the, essentially the stepfather of the Messiah. And his life is never the same. We have shepherds keeping sheep in the field at night. And the sky is ripped open. And angels are giving a birth announcement. And a Messiah is born in that town, in your town. Go see, worship. And their lives are changed forever. And then we, in each of those cases, we have fast-forwarded 30 years to Jesus' ministry as an adult, and we see how he interrupted people's lives. He challenged them in so many ways. Fishermen, like the shepherds just doing their work, and Jesus comes by and says, follow me. Drop your nets, follow me. I will make you fishers of people. 
It changed their lives forever. Lives were interrupted as people came in contact with Jesus. Today we have the stories of Simeon and Lazarus. Simeon from the Christmas story or thereabouts and, and Lazarus from 30 years later. Simeon, this is the story that we, we often do on this Sunday after Christmas because in the scriptural account we have, you know, in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph, Bethlehem, the inn, the shepherds, and then Mary's pondering all these things in her heart, and we think it's over, but there's one more story that happens about a month later, actually. Uh, in the Jewish traditions of the time, there were really four rituals that were necessary after the birth of a, of a male child. Uh, there, eight days after the birth, there was a circumcision. Uh, there was the naming of a child. And then a, a 30 to 40 days later, there were two other things. The dedication of the child. If you were close enough to the temple to go there, you would go to the temple for that. And, um, and the, a, a purification sacrifice that the mother would, would offer. And so Luke mentions all of these things. They were doing all the things that the law required them to do. And uh, Bethlehem is five miles away from Jerusalem, and so they made the trip, a, a day trip probably, to Jerusalem to, uh, to do this sacrifice. And they go into the temple and they meet a man named Simeon. Let's uh, look at the scripture on this uh, from Luke, uh, Luke 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And the Holy Spirit was on him. Let's see the, the next, as the story goes on. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. We'll pause there. This is a man who was in touch with the Holy Spirit. This was... Uh, unusual in that time. This, this identifies him as something of a prophet. He also talks like a prophet as the story goes on. He says prophets have a way of, of having um, double meaning in their language. They, they say things that are full of meaning that can mean several different things. And that often happens in scripture, in the, in the, the scriptures of the Old Testament and, and where we encounter prophecy in the New. There are off, uh, often these, these double meanings, and we'll, we'll find that here, and we'll talk through uh, some of those. He had been told by the Spirit that he would not die until uh, he saw the Lord's Messiah, and so he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Interestingly, in the Greek, this word consolation is the same that we find later for the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the consoler or the counselor, the helper. He, so he was waiting for Israel to find comfort, to find help, to be restored from its difficulties. And there were some difficulties. I wonder what Simeon was expecting. How he expected this consolation of Israel to occur. 
I did the math on this. Um, I was, I'm, I'm wondering how old Simeon was at this time. Later in this story, we meet a woman named Anna, and it's said, it's told, we're told that she is 84 years old. It's possible that it means that she had been a widow for 84 years, and so she might have been much older than that. But she's at least 84 years old. That might make Simeon about the same age, especially the fact that he seems about to die. I mean, he's old enough to die, but he's hanging on until he sees the Lord's Messiah. And so I'm thinking that he's about 84 years old. So what would have been happening in his life when he was a teenager, when he was uh, 20 years old? Well, you look back in history, that was when the Romans took over Judea. That was when they invaded the nation and took over, and now they were under Roman rule. There had been a century of independence before that. The Jews were an independent nation for a hundred years, but in 63 BC, Pompey, the Roman general, came in and, and invaded the nation and took over. There was a civil war going on among different Jewish fashion, uh, factions, and actually one of those factions sort of invited the Romans in. That was a big mistake, and the Romans uh, took over. In fact, there's a story of, um, from one historian where uh, priests were conducting services in the temple while the Roman soldiers were coming in. And they kept, they continued, they finished out the service there while the Romans invaded and took over the temple complex. And so, for the previous 60 years, Simeon had, had grown up and experienced his adulthood in a land where the Jews were not free where their land was dominated by these pagans, these worshipers of other gods, these practitioners of other practices, these people who did not have a lot of respect for the Jewish faith, the Jewish identity, the people who treated them as servants. And I could imagine that what Simeon was waiting for was a reversal of that. In fact, I wonder if he was there in the temple when this all went down. Was he a soldier in one of the Jewish armies there who either fought the Romans or maybe laid down his arms as, as he saw and his comrades saw how powerful the Roman army was? Or was he a priest or Levite, a helper in the temple, working on the, doing these services, helping out with the sacrifices as a young man, seeing the Roman soldiers come in and take over. And was that the moment when the Holy Spirit said to him, I know you hate what's going on now, but I promise you, you will not die until you see me bring the anointed one the Messiah, the one who will bring redemption, consolation to my people. I have a plan, and you will see the salvation of Israel. Maybe. I don't know if it happened then. I, I, we, I'm, I'm making a lot of guesses there. But I know the timing would have worked that way. That Simeon may have been looking not for a baby in someone's arms. He may have been looking for a warrior, a new King David, to come through those gates with a band of soldiers setting up a rebellion 
I am going to turn those Romans away. Who's with me? That's what Simeon might have been looking for. But instead, he sees Joseph and Mary coming in with a baby in their arms. And the Holy Spirit tells him, this is it. This is what you've been waiting for. That's just a baby. Where are the weapons? Where is his band of soldiers? This is the one. This is the Messiah. This is how I am going to redeem my people. And in his prophetic mind, he sees it then. He gets it. And the first thing he does, he offers a prayer to the Lord. And we, we see that in the, in the scripture here. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. We'll pause here a moment and, and, and think through this prayer. He's been a good watchman. Sometimes some of the other prophets talk about uh, you know, standing on the, on the, the gates of, of the city or the tower of the, of the city and looking, watching, watching for signs of danger, watching for signs of redemption to come. He's been watching for this deliverance. And now it's here. He's been a faithful watchman, and now he is dismissed from his duties. Now the Lord can let him depart, die in peace, because he has done his job. He has ushered in this, this very moment. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And so in this moment, we see that it is not just for Israel. It is not just a revolution that will give Israel their independence. This is salvation for the whole world, for the non-Jews as well as the Jews. This extends far beyond. It is the glory of Israel, but it is the salvation of Gentiles as well. And he sees this in this moment, and he prays this to the Lord. Thank you for this thing which is far more amazing than I imagined. I thought you were just going to set Israel free. You are going to set humanity free. How great is that? Surprise. It's a far greater promise than he had probably expected. And then he turns to Mary. And he speaks to her. And he says this. We have it on the screen. Uh, this is just the beginning of it. It goes, it goes on. There's, a, there's, there's some more that we could talk about. But, but this is the main thing. The ch- this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. It goes, it goes on to talk about how, how society will be, there, there will be enemies and, and it will be ripped apart and, and that Mary herself may have some, some, some pain in this, that a sword will pierce her, her, her soul. And I imagine that that might have been what it felt like at the cross when she saw Jesus dying uh, a cruel death. Uh, how difficult that must have been for her. 
But it's in this context. The child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And, and I'm thinking, what must Simeon have expected in that regard? The falling and rising. He, he, he would look around the society of his time and he would see many people who needed to fall. They were, they were in positions of power because they had been corrupt and dishonest. They had paid off the Romans. They had sold out to the power structure and were now leaders, but they were deeply flawed people. They were proud and arrogant, perhaps. He might have thought of King Herod particularly. Herod, you remember Herod as the king that the wise men came to see, looking for the king of the Jews. Well, Herod was the king of the Jews, even though he wasn't really Jewish, and only the Romans had made him a king, because his father had done some favors for Mark Antony. That's, that's true, actually. His father had done favors for Mark Antony, and so the whole family was rewarded by Rome. Herod had grown up in Rome and knew many of the Roman leaders, and they needed a king for this new land they conquered. So, okay, Herod, why don't you do that? He was arrogant. He was violent. He was manipulative. He needed to fall. And Simeon might have been thinking about this sort of power in Israel that needed to be put down while good, righteous people were being trampled on and they needed to rise. Well, fast forward 30 years and Jesus' um, ministry, he talked a lot about falling and rising. He, he said, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. So much of Jesus' ministry involved challenging those in power, those who were wealthy, those who had privilege, and raising up the outcasts, the prostitutes, the lepers, those who were shunned by society, he lifted them up into a genuine relationship with God while he challenged the powerful who were trying to trust in their own righteousness, their own power, their own wealth. This is what they trusted in and Jesus said, no, it doesn't work like that. You need to humble yourself and accept what God gives you. The falling and rising that's what Jesus' ministry was, was about to a great degree. What's interesting is that the word rising there, um, in Greek, it's uh, Anastasia. It's the Greek word for resurrection. Rising. And it makes me think that there might be even yet a, another interpretation of this, the falling and rising, that, that for us, even today, what Jesus did brings about the falling and rising of many people. That there is a way in which as we, as we give up our own pride, that we fall on the mercy of God. And that he lifts us up in resurrection with him into a relationship with God. And so this child becomes the man who dies for our sins and causes our, the falling of our own efforts and the resurrection to a new life. I'm going to move on to the, to the second story 
Jesus as an adult, and it's really fairly late in Jesus' ministry, that Lazarus, his good friend, becomes ill. Now, Jesus, we know he had the 12 disciples that he traveled around with, but there were a number of other people that he had as friends and supporters. And uh, this family, Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, lived near Jerusalem in a town called Bethany. It was about two miles east of Jerusalem. And often when Jesus and his group uh, visited Jerusalem, they would stay in the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Uh, which suggests that they had a home large enough to accommodate a large group. We have other hints that this may have been a somewhat affluent family, that they were well known to people in Jerusalem. When Lazarus died, there were lots of people. Spoiler alert, Lazarus dies. I don't know if you got that, but he dies. There's a funeral. Um, Many people come to the funeral. There are many mourners there, and so which indicates they were well known in, in the city and that their home could accommodate a large group of, of mourners. So Lazarus, when we pick up the story, Lazarus is, is sick. Uh, in fact, we have this. Uh, let's, let's read it from the, the scriptures here. Um, oh, no, actually, I'll start it a little earlier. When uh, Lazarus is sick, Martha sends word to Jesus. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are staying uh, somewhere about a four-day journey away. And uh, so Martha sends word to him that Lazarus is very sick. When he gets word, he, he waits. He actually waits until Lazarus actually dies, and then Jesus and his disciples travel to Bethany, to the home of, of this family. Uh, at first, that seems kind of weird. It seems like Jesus is being uncaring there. Why would he not come right away? And the fact is, when you, when you add up the numbers and figure out the transportation and everything, uh, Lazarus, uh, by the time Jesus got the message, even if he had left right away, Lazarus would, also, would already have been dead by the time he got there. Um, as it was, when Jesus arrived, it, he, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And that was significant because in Jewish culture at the time, there was this sense that after someone died, the spirit lived within them for three days. And then it went where spirits go. And, um, and so on the fourth day, somebody would be really dead. Up until that time, it might be considered a kind of reviving. Maybe just, they were just in a coma or something. Uh, it wouldn't be that big a deal. But by the fourth day, they're, they're dead. The spirit's gone. There's no question. They're dead. And so Jesus was interested in, in setting this up so that when he ro- raised Lazarus from the dead, everyone would know that this was really a miracle and not just some some chance occurrence. So, Jesus, four days after the death, is arriving here, and here we have the scripture. Uh, When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, she had faith in Jesus as a healer. She knew he could heal people with the power of God. 
And that's probably what she's saying here, although maybe this is a little bit peeling off another layer of that faith, saying, okay, I, I, there are a lot of things I don't understand about you, Jesus. Even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. She's not daring to mention anything about resurrection at this point. She knows he's a healer, and she's upset with him for not getting there earlier because then he could have healed Lazarus. Now Lazarus is dead. She thinks that's the end of the story, but I don't know, maybe you're in touch with God, Jesus. Uh, he'll do what you want. So is there anything more? Maybe. A fascinating conversation ensues here. And so in the next uh, uh, slide we get, um, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yeah, Martha said. He will rise when everyone else arises at the last day. So she is in, in a theological place. She believes in Jesus and she has a, a, a proper theology here. That not all the Jews at that time believed in a resurrection at the end of time. Some thought that you're dead, you're just gone. But, uh, but Martha believed in a resurrection. Jesus believed and taught about a resurrection. And so... So Martha is agreeing with him in theological terms. There will be a resurrection at the last day. We will all be raised up into, into heaven at that, at that point. And so, yes. And Jesus then makes it more personal. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And he continues on the next screen Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And then she makes this a really great statement of, of faith here. Yes, Lord, she told him, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. You, in this simple conversation, you see uh, some steps of faith. There, you see her moving from, from Jesus is a healer. Maybe there's more. The resurrection happens in the last day. And now in this moment, she, he is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And maybe she doesn't entirely know what that means, but she is saying, you are the son of God. You are more than I imagined. I, I trust you in this. And as the story goes on, the, uh, Jesus sees Mary. Mary has the same question for Jesus or the same complaint. If you were here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Jesus goes on to the tomb, and even then, there, he says, remove the stone from the tomb. And Martha is still not believing in resurrection because she says, it's been four days. There's going to be a terrible smell here. He's dead. He's decomposing even now. And Jesus calls into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb, raised to life. Now, I hate to break it to you, but at some point later, maybe 10 years later, maybe 20 years later, Lazarus died again. Jesus did not immunize him from death ever. But the scriptures talk about Jesus' miracles as signs. He was showing something about himself. And that's what was going on here. That's why he waited until Lazarus was dead four, year, uh, four days. He was saying, I am the Messiah. 
with power over life and death. I have that power. I am the Lord of life. I am not just a guy who does some tricks with water and wine. I am not just a healer of living people. I hold the power of life and death. Will you trust me with your life? And as we continue to read through Scripture, we find this sense that we are promised eternal life, but eternal is not just quantitative, it's qualitative. It's not just the duration of life, it is the quality of life. And so what he offers us is not that we will never experience physical death, we do, but that there is a quality of life, an eternal kind of life that we begin now and that will continue beyond our physical death in our relationship with God forever. This is what he promises to us. Us. And he has the power to do it as he showed in his miracles. An eternal kind of life is available to you. And that's where we find ourselves now, today, here. As we have mashed up these stories from Christmas and from Jesus' ministry to see the, the compilation of the power of God and the surprises of God, how he takes what we believe and pushes it to a higher power, as he surprises us with how amazing this really can be for us. So maybe you're here today and you are a Christmas Christian. And, and I'm not knocking that. I love that. The whole world at Christmas time seems to rally around good things like love and joy and peace. These are Christian virtues that we celebrate, and the world celebrates with us at Christmas. And, and so maybe you are one who just comes alive at Christmas, and you are all about spiritual things at Christmas. You love God and Jesus and Mary and the whole thing at Christmas time, and that's wonderful. But what God is saying to you this morning is you could have so much more. That there is an eternal kind of life available to you that goes beyond the Christmas season, that goes beyond this human life that can last forever. An eternal kind of life where you care about eternal things and not just whether the Eagles will win this afternoon. And I mean that. I, I root for the Eagles. I want the Eagles to win, but there are, so, there are things that are so much more important. And do we care about those things? Is God guiding us to do things in our lives, to invest our lives in things that have eternal significance? This is the eternal kind of life that he offers us, and that he calls us into. Jesus went to the tomb, said, Lazarus, come out, come out. And he does that to each of us. He comes to the edge of your life and he calls into your life and he says, come out. Come out of that, that Christmas Christianity. Come out of that casual stuff. That, come out of that, that self-absorbed sense that you just live day after day after day and get by. I have an eternal life ready for you. Will you go there with me? It will blow your mind. We have this much life that we treasure, 
Oh, God has this much life ready for us. We have an announcement uh, that, that we'll be making in a moment, and, uh, um, but I'll close this uh, section in prayer. Lord, uh, give us this life. Challenge us as you do. Give us the surprises, not just in the Christmas season, but all year long as we enter this new year. Keep surprising us. In your name, amen.